How you guys doing today? You good? Man, I'm thankful for uh, a church that uh, we have people in our church who would just say, yeah, we just need to take some extra time and pray today. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, that is beautiful. Um, well, as, as Mark said, we're, we're in uh, John chapter 14. This has been our key scriptural text for our series uh, but we are actually, the series that we're in is, is a series that we are ending today called I Believe. We have been walking through uh, something called the Apostles' Creed for a little over a month now. And uh, I'll, I'll read that to you for a moment. But as we're wrapping up our, our series today, uh, let's just kind of remind ourselves why we've been studying the creed. So the, the, the creed is a confession. It's a confession of faith. And in fact, leaders of the church for generations have known that, that confession of faith and hope is so important that they came up with these statements called creeds that are designed to help disciples of Jesus or Christians, followers of the way of Christ, uh, to know what exactly it is that we are holding on to when we hold on to Christian faith and so that we know what it is that we believe. And the creeds are not new. These aren't new ideas. These were framed, uh, for example, the Nicene Creed, which is a, a creed that you, you may have heard before, uh, was originally adopted by the church in 325 A.D., the Apostles' Creed that we've been studying for the last month or so uh, was written somewhere between 200 and 300 A.D., so not too long after the resurrection of Christ, early days in the church, uh, and Christians have been memorizing and reciting the Apostles' Creed for a long time. In fact, the Apostles' Creed that we've been studying for the last month was the first of these uh, written statements. And the reason that this was written was so that we could make sure we guard the church from what's called heresy, which is false teachings about God. So we needed to have this foundational statement that is inspired by Scripture, while the creed itself isn't Scripture. Uh, it's rooted in Scripture. It, it agrees with Scripture. And it's a list of statements that when you say, I believe these things, you are believing in what's called orth orthodox Christianity. These are foundational, essential beliefs that we hold as Christians. Now, we happen to be Pentecostal Christians, but there are Christians throughout generations in all denominations. Anyone who calls himself a Christian agrees with, must agree with, or believe in these statements. So, to that end, let me, let me read to you the Apostles' Creed. Our tradition during this series has been to pray the creed at the end of the sermon. So we'll do that at the end today. But listen to what the creed says. This is what we say we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, our hope during this study, the reason we've been studying this, is so that we would strengthen our understanding of our commitment to these essential 
foundational elements of our Christian faith. And today, I told you that we're ending our series through the creed. And so what we're going to do is is we're going to take this final phase of the creed, this final statement, which in its own right, each of these could have their own sermon uh, but, but the reason that it, we're doing this all in one day today is because I want to show you part of what I'm going to try to do today is while we could go deep into each of these statements, uh, we're going to show how they are linked, how, how all of this together as a final phase of the Apostles' Creed is very important for us to, to believe these things married together. And so, again, what we're focusing on today is the statement that we believe in the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, before we dig into that, though, let me, let me just remind you uh, of something that I said at the beginning of this series so that you can have a, another layer of context, that we're not just doing this so that we can say that we're Christians, we believe the things the Christians believe, uh, but I, I want you to see how this is actually rooted in the discipline and the function and the rhythm of the church. All right, so I said this at the beginning of our series. I'll say it to you now. Uh, so this might be a bit of a review for you, but the word creed actually is derived from a Latin word, credo. And that, that word credo literally means I believe. Now, it, it means I believe. Say I believe. That's the word credo. If you were to say credimus, then you would say we believe. So to say I believe, a, the credo is personal. And that matters, because as you're, as you're confessing the Apostles' Creed, you're saying, I believe these things. Now, that's really, really important, because the Creed is the statement of faith that you personally hold. I cannot hold this on your behalf. So I can't invite you into the church and say, now, if we just say we believe this, or like the organization that we call Life Church, at Life Church, we believe these things. And if you attend Life Church three out of four Sundays, then you too can believe these things. That's not how the creed works. The creed is about personalizing a communal faith. So we, so we, we have it in the first person uh, singular form, credo, uh, not credimus, we believe. Now, there is, that having said, there is a communal nature to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I, I declare this in the context of my church community. And to that end, the Creed has actually been a part of what, uh, what, what liturgical churches, you, maybe you've gone to a Catholic church before and they would have something, uh, a process called catechism. Now, this is the process of Maybe you would call this the process of orientation. Like if you got a new job, you went to orientation. What they were doing is you were going through job catechism. They were telling you, here are the rules, here's what we believe, here are our values at this company, and if you want to be a part of this company, here's how we behave. That's called catechism in the church context. Now, uh, in, in our modern Western churches, non-Catholic uh, kind of Protestant Pentecostal churches, you might call this like a new believers class or a foundations class. And we, we have functions like that here at Life Church, but that kind of roots that into the context. And one of the things that you would do in the early church, in fact, it has been done for generations, is that a person would come to faith in Christ and they would begin to learn. They would be engaged in this process called catechism. And, and what they were learning was they were learning about God and they were learning sound theology, sound doctrine through primarily the memorization of the Apostles' Creed. It was like the curriculum for catechism. 
so that by the end of, the, of your catechism process or catechesis, uh, you would then actually recite the Apostles' Creed at your water baptism. So we would, and, and we'll even offer this today because we're excited about it, but we'll even do what we'll call spontaneous baptism where, uh, for example, this young man who stood up on the stage, he's in El Salvador on a missions trip right now, uh, not too long ago, uh, several years ago now, but in the big scheme of things, not too long ago, uh, we were doing a water baptism and we said at the end of a scheduled water baptism, is anybody just feeling like they want to get in the water right now and say, I'm committing my life to Jesus right now. And this young man, Elijah, jumped in in a pair of jeans and got water baptized baptized on a Sunday after church. And, and you know what? That moment marked the beginning of something new in his life. And it was amazing to be a part of that. And he caught what we would call catechism on the back end. We walked him through mentorship and discipleship and we're so committed to it. We kicked him out, sent him to San Dimas to go to Bible college. Uh, and, and he still drives down here on Sundays to come and be a part. Uh, and now he's in El Salvador uh, continuing his development as a short-term missionary. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and so, so he got it kind of on the back end where he was catechized after his baptism. And this series maybe has functioned as catechism for you. And if you've never been water baptized, then today you heard Pastor Mark said, after service, we're celebrating water baptism. Our friend Sherry is getting baptized today after service. We're really excited about that. And the reason we scheduled a water baptism today is because we want to root into our culture and the rhythm of our church that we, like Christians for generations, catechize and then baptize. We will also invite you to be spontaneously baptized with this commitment. Will you keep showing up and let us walk you through a process of discipleship and development and tell you everything that it means to live out the decision that you've made after the fact? Either way, whatever order you do it in, what is vitally important, this is the purpose and function of the Apostles' Creed in the context of a community called a local church, is that we highly value that your outward expression of faith, water baptism, is deeply connected, meaningfully connected to the inner conviction of faith on foundational truth that you have, and that is the function of the Apostles' Creed. And so that's why it's very important that we hold on to these statements of faith. Now, having said all of that, let's conclude this series by talking about our belief in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life eternal or everlasting. So we'll begin with the forgiveness of sins, which I, I would say is built a little bit like an equation on three things. So this plus this plus this uh, allows us to experience the fullness of this forgiveness of sins. And the first thing that we have to talk about in light of this equation as we talk about the forgiveness of sins is the function of confession. Just say that word with me, confession. Confession. Now, it's nice to say the word. It's more important that you do the thing. So... We're going to talk about that for a minute. If we want to experience forgiveness, we need to engage in confession. Now, confession of sin requires that you are first aware of sin. You can't confess something you didn't know you have done or that you don't believe was a problem, right? Okay, now Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I have news for you. No matter how wonderful of a person you think that you are, and you may very well be the wonderfulest of persons, you have sinned. You might have even done it today. And if you're sitting there going, no, I've never, you just did. 
Safe place. You did it at church. <laughs> this, this is a reality of, of our human nature. All of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here's what Paul is not saying in Romans 3.23. He's not saying all have sinned, point number one, and point number two, also we have fallen short of the glory of God. He's actually marrying these two ideas together. He's defining sin for us. He's saying all have sinned by falling short of the glorious standard of God. This is what sin looks like. Falling short of the glory of God is sin. In Leviticus 19, chapter 2, God tells us his standard, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, to be holy means to be morally and spiritually excellent or to be perfect, like God is perfect. Now, I remember the days when Sharon and I were dating, and she was absolutely convinced that I was perfect. And then about 30 seconds into our relationship, she realized I, too, am a human being. It took me much longer to realize that for her. But she, too, is a human being. I just found out last week. It blew my mind. The problem, with being per- the, the problem with being holy and, and being perfect is that you can't do it. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so God says sin is anytime you fail to be perfect like I am perfect. That's sin. Now, we can get into the weeds on sin and say there's sins of commission, which is when you commit an act that you should not have committed, or sins of omission is when you fail to commit an act that you should have committed. Right? That's sin on either end. Doing the thing you shouldn't do or not doing the thing you should have done. It's all sin. It's all failing to live up to the glorious standard of God. And you have done it. I've done it. You'll do it again. Sometimes on purpose. But we have to come to terms with this reality. All of us have sin. This means all of us are guilty of sin. And all of us owe a debt because we have sinned, which, is, which, which Paul says that the debt that we owe is the cost of our life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, the payment for your sin. When you sin, you are earning a paycheck, and that paycheck is death. And you will not have God refuse to pay that debt. The question is, who receives the check? And if you have not engaged in confession of sin, the answer to the question, who receives the check for the debt that you owe for your sin, is you. Thankfully, that's not where this sermon ends. Right? There's good news coming. But we have to wrestle with this idea of confession. Confession would be the action that we take as we come to terms with our guilt. We say the truth. Now, I want you to hear this very clearly. There can be no grace without remorse for sin. There can be no forgiveness unless we confess that we have sinned. We have got to stop pretending that if we just sing the song and attend the service, that our sins will be forgiven. I cannot forgive your sins by preaching the world's best sermon. And if you were waiting for that, I'm not that good at my job. 
I cannot preach a sermon that will pay the debt for you. And I cannot do a work that would redeem you. Only Jesus can do that. But you can only engage with the reward if you first confess. So we are, we are a church, and we, we've talked about this for a, a little while now. We are a church that we're working to normalize confession in our church. This means that we have, to, we have to remove the function and the presence of shame from our church. And that's going to take years because you were raised in a culture that tells you to be ashamed. And you are so ashamed of having ever done anything wrong that you will run your mouth as often and as quickly as you possibly can to make yourself look and feel better as a human being. That's not because you're bad. That's because you grew up where I grew up. This is what our culture teaches us to do. Do everything you can to make yourself look good. This is why we are so quick to give untrue answers to questions like, how are you doing? I'm great. No, tell the truth. Make confession. No one can help you if you are a liar. And if that's true in community, then it is eternally true before the Almighty God who is willing to pay the debt for your sin. I must tell the truth. I must. I must tell the truth. Like, and I don't mean must like I strongly encourage you to tell the truth. I mean your eternal life or death hangs in the balance based on whether or not you are a truth teller. Guys, I promise this is going to get so encouraging in a minute. But confession is the act of admitting the truth of guilt before the eternal judge who already knows our guilt and has legal authority to carry out judgment. This is what confession is, admitting the truth. Confession is not telling God a secret. He has never been surprised by your confession. Not ever once. It is admitting a truth that he already knows. Uh, theologian and author R.C. Sproul says that our confession demands a belief in something more than our own guilt. In fact, he goes, goes so far to say this. What good is an incarnation, a virgin birth, a crucifixion, a burial, a resurrection, an ascension, a return in glory, if there's no forgiveness? He's making the argument, when we study the Apostles' Creed and we come to the end, this is the thing that makes the rest of it matter. We believe in forgiveness of sins. This is the Super Bowl touchdown. I believe in the Father Almighty. Yes, I definitely believe in that. I believe in Jesus and all of the things that we say that the Bible says about Jesus are true. Yes, absolutely. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Yes and amen. The present action of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. Oh, I also believe in the church. The the communion of the saints and the holy Christian church. Yes, I'm thankful for the church, but none of the creed matters at all if it's not for the forgiveness of sins. It all just unravels and falls apart and becomes embarrassing if none of this actually changes our lives. I mean, what a waste of energy if none of this actually changes anything. And forgiveness of sins is the first thing that we see that changes. By the way, this is where it starts to get good because this is where Christ comes into the equation. We, we have 
Uh, and P Paul, by the way, doesn't end Romans 6.23 uh, at just saying the wages of sin is death. He goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, indeed. Right? So to, to the, the one who responds to our confession is the same Jesus that Paul is talking about. It's the same Jesus who offers confession. So, so the equation goes confession plus Christ. Confession plus Jesus. Confession of sin to Christ results in forgiveness from Christ. John makes this clear. First John 1, verses 8 through 9, he says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would just like to make a point very clear here. That there is no caveat that if we confess our sins on a Sunday or if we confess our sins to a priest, or if we confess our sins in a church service. It just says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is a cause and effect. That's a, that's a promise. Let me go so far as to say, this is a legally binding contract between confessor and Christ. He, he, he put his blood on the line to make this legally binding, right? This is the gospel. This is the good news. Now, we won't take uh, time to unpack this a lot today, but because we've already talked about the, the work of Jesus in the creed. Let me just remind you what the creed says about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That judgment of the living and the dead is Jesus' engagement with our sin. The question is, have you confessed before he came to judge? So now, the point that I want to drive home here, though, is that the creed makes a very clear statement. Again, a promise. When we confess our sins to Jesus, Jesus responds with forgiveness. Jesus responds with forgiveness. I would ask you, how many times does he respond with forgiveness? Every single one of them. Right? I would ask you further, to which sins does Jesus respond with forgiveness? Every single one of them. Yes? We play this interesting game in the church where we think that there are some sins that are too big for God to, to forgive us of. As if you have out the death and resurrection of Christ. And, th and then we also play on the flip side that there are some sins that are small enough that yeah, we can get away without not having to confess those before Jesus. He understands. It's just, you know, the way that I am. No, sweetheart, you need a therapist and a pastor. You need to confess, right? 
again, we won't get into the nitty gritty of all of this. Uh, one of the questions you might be asking is, well, I've confessed like six months ago, do I need to confess again? Do I need to keep confessing? In fact, do I need to keep confessing for the same thing because I don't feel forgiven? I don't feel like it worked. And, and I think the question that we would have there is, when Jesus said, if, 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 when Scripture teaches us, if you confess your sin, then he is faithful and will forgive, will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Does it say in Scripture, and he will make you feel positive? No, he's not engaging with your emotions. He's engaging with your identity. He's engaging with the reality of who you are as a human being, not with how you feel about yourself. That's why you probably need the therapist. But what you actually really need is faith. In the same talk that I quoted a moment ago from R.C. Sproul, he goes on to say, you know, he has people come to him and say, well, I don't feel forgiven. And he says, that's because you need to repent. And they say, what do you mean? My issue is I keep repenting for sin all the time. I've repented for the sin that I did like three years ago, and I just don't feel forgiven. It's, repentance doesn't work. And R.C. Sproul says, you know what I tell these people? Is I, I, I tell them, now you actually need to repent of the fact that you don't believe God. That when Jesus said, if you confess, he will forgive, you just, your problem is you don't believe that. Well, why do I need to repent of that? Because you're calling God a liar. Look, friends, either Jesus said, I will forgive you, and he meant it, or he lied. And if he lied, then stand up right now and leave this place because we are absolutely wasting our time. We either believe it or we do not believe it. It's either true or it is not true. I, I want you to understand, whether or not you feel forgiven is irrelevant. Whether or not you are forgiven is the gospel. Everything hangs on the truth of this. You are forgiven by Christ if you confess. It's an equation. It's an equation like 2 plus 2 is always 4 no matter what you think. Every single time. Right? So refusing to believe that I am forgiven after I confess of sin is like telling God I believe he is a liar. And this actually is where the third part of our equation comes into to bring our engagement with confession into healthy community. We need confession plus Christ plus community. Plus people. Plus each other. Right? Now the creed actually roots confession of sin into community and scripture agrees with that. In James chapter 5 verse 16, James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, confession of God brings forgiveness of sins. Confession to each other brings healing. When I confess my sins to my friend Mark, I receive healing. When I confess my sin to Jesus, I receive forgiveness. Now, Mark doesn't 
lay his hands on me when I confess sin to my friend Mark. And, and, and he goes, be healed in the name of Jesus. But you know what heals me is he loves me. He says, you know that Jesus loves you, right? Yeah. I actually remember this one time I, I was talking to Mark and I was like, yeah, I, I need to just confess this thing to you. And he just, I remember standing shoulder to shoulder with him. He didn't even look at me. And he just goes, are you okay? That was it. Just, are you okay? And him just asking that question healed something in me. Because I need confession in the context of community. Do you know why we don't do this? Because we don't trust the church. Because we don't trust the church. And I'm not about to tell you that you should just blindly trust every person in the church. I'm not going to tell you that even for a second. In fact, I'm not even asking that you begin to practice, because we do not and will not practice this here at Life Church. I'm not asking you to stand up right now and begin to publicly confess all of your sins in front of all these people in the room where we are also live streaming a service. Just <laughs> Community. What's beautiful about a local church is communities, plural, exist within the community singular of a local church. Just like communities, local churches exist within the community of the body of Christ. Right? So think for a second, who are your people in this church? Who are your people in this church? Now, I have already made an argument for you, whether you even realized what I was doing or not. I have made an argument for you that you need the person sitting next to you. And every spouse was like, did you hear that, babe? <laughs> I need you. Right? And I, all these men are like, fired up about brisket at a men's breakfast. They're like, how many points can I win today? Preach it, brother. I need my wife. <laughs> you know why we're doing a men's breakfast on April 1st, though? because you don't need just your wife. Ladies, you don't need just your husband. Because if that was true, then all the, all the single people in the church are now second-class citizens and you don't have a function of community where you can confess. And how dare we ever imply anything of the sort? Where are my single people at? Right? Maybe you're like, over here! <laughs> and maybe you're like, no, I like it this way. <laughs> But the point is this, James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other and you will be healed. This happens in the context of marriage in beautiful ways. This happens in the context of households with parents and children and between siblings in beautiful ways. And it happens in the context of friendship in beautiful ways. And I know that when we say things like you should come to church every Sunday and you should come early and stay late and hang around and go out to lunch with people, I know what that can sound like in your Western brain is, well, that's the church just trying to promote an event or a program or, or, or like just build up the community because like they have to say that. And we, I just want you to understand everything we do is for the context of you need community. You need Christ. 
And you need both of those things, and you cannot fully engage with Christ without community, and you cannot fully enjoy community without Christ. And if confession isn't a function of your Christ engagement and your community engagement, then you are missing the fullness of life that Jesus said that he came to give us. You need to confess to Jesus and to each other. And I might be an each other to you. And I'm deeply honored in the moments where confession of sin happens to, to, to me. And if it happens to you, can I just give you a pro tip? Do what my friend Mark does and just say, are you okay? And then listen to the answer. And then do what James tells us to do. Pray for each other. Because then Mark will say, can I, how can I pray for you? How, how can I stand with you in this? Right? And then what you never do is go tell someone else what you just heard. Because that's how we undo over the course of generations so that our children will learn how to engage confession without having to worry about whether or not they can trust the church. And on that point, if you have ever been hurt because somebody representing Jesus as a leader in the church uncovered you when you confessed sin as a pastor, I would like to stand in their place and say that was wrong and I am sorry. You should never have been uncovered by your confession because love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't hide and pretend sin doesn't happen, but it covers a multitude of sins. And that idea of multitude means all of them that are confessed and repented of. Right? There are moments where we see sin that isn't repented of, and then we go, we got to deal with that. And if you're not deal- willing to deal with it, we will deal with it wh- where, you know, because eternity is at stake and because the safety of our community matters. So we will deal with sin appropriately. We will hide nothing, but we will cover everything with love. And you have to understand that those are different. All right, okay. Should we move forward? Yes, please, move forward. Okay. Yeah, just, just so that you hear more from Scripture than just my words, I, I think it's important for us to say that before we move on to the next moment, uh, let's remember that Paul... Uh, seems to double down on the importance of, of community that leads to confession. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, uh, he, he writes this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's this idea of everyone who confesses faith in Christ will be saved. But then it says this, how then can they call on him if they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now, put that back into the context of community. What Paul is saying is if no one is willing to call out sin, if no one is willing to point to Jesus, if no one will preach the gospel, if if you don't have community telling you where you need confession in Christ to engage you in the context of community, then you you can't do it. We have to have community if we want to enjoy the fullness of life that Jesus comes to offer. In fact, he would go, I, I think he goes so far here, here to say that community is the only reason you even know about your need to confess sin. Right? So in other words, salvation and forgiveness of sin comes from Jesus, but it happens in the context of community. 
I cannot forgive you of your sin, but I can receive your confession and point you to the Jesus who does so that you may be forgiven and healed. So to believe in the forgiveness of sins is also to believe in everything that the creed has said up until this point. Everything hinges on this, including in saying, I believe in the church, which is where I make confession. And then the result of forgiveness is seen in the final confession of the Apostles' Creed, which is where we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, just a point of clarity, when we say the resurrection of the body in this portion of the creed, we're not talking about Jesus' body, we're talking about our own body. When we, Because we've already talked about Jesus' resurrection, so here we're talking about, I believe in the resurrection of my body. It would, this, is, this is a statement in belief of, of, of our resurrection, which brings us back around to our core text for this entire series. In John 14, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house. Listen to this in the context of saying, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Pause. He's not going to prepare a place for your spirit for you to ethereally dwell. He's going to prepare a place for you to live, to be present. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be present also. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas says he doesn't know the way. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you also know my Father. Jesus was promising the ultimate reward for those who believe in him. To believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the church, everything the creed has said so far, is also to believe that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us to be with him forever. Now, we will have access to that place by virtue of the resurrection of our body, not by Jesus' body, but of my own, which is what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Now, this means at least two things about Jesus. Number one, Christ still has a body after his own resurrection. And number two, his body is different than it was before his resurrection. Which then means two things about us. If, if Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 is true, then this means for us, we will also have our bodies in eternity, number one. But number two, there will be something glorified about our bodies in eternity. Glorified meaning, meaning healed, made whole, as it was originally intended to be. Uh, so whatever happened to your physical body as a result of sin coming into the world will be undone when your body is glorified in eternity. Our bodies will be whole and no longer subject to death or decay or disease. I remember when I was in my doctorate program, we read a book about, uh, about how we can love as members of the church people with physical disabilities. It was a deeply moving book and, and, and really helpful for me to think through as a pastor. 
Um, but one of the interesting kind of side conversations that we got into was whether or not we can build a theology that our physical body will be just like it is in eternity. And there's actually an entire theological framework that says that if you are, for example, uh, missing a limb in this life, that you would still be missing that limb in eternity. And the argument for that is that your understanding of what is actually important becomes spiritual and not physical, and so the limb becomes the reminder of your redemption for eternity. And my argument back to that was, why do I need a reminder of what I've been redeemed of in my physical body if I can just look at Jesus' face every day? And then we point to Scripture, and I just cannot find anything in Scripture that says that if you are sick in any way in your physical body or less than perfect in any way in your physical body, that you would maintain that lack of perfection into eternity. Because Jesus has a glorified body. And the pushback is, well, but Jesus still has the piercing in the holes in his hands and all of that. And the response to that is, I'm not the savior of the world. My physical infirmity never set anyone free from eternal damnation. But his set me free from literally everything. And so here's the promise. There will be a time when all sickness and pain and tears and death and suffering and sorrow and brokenness and disease is completely eradicated from those who are called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. We call that time eternal life. We call that place heaven, right? In fact, this is what Paul, uh, or forgive me, this is what John writes about in his vision of the end of all things in Revelation chapter 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This is the blessing. This is the promise. And this is what we say I believe in when I say I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, I want to make this very, very clear. God is not inviting us into a reincarnation of our body. Because you're saint, you don't get a new body and get to be a new person based on how good you were when you were this person. You, who you are, spirit, soul, and body, is carried into eternity, either for life or for death, based on your confession to Christ in the context of community. Do you believe? And if you do, you get the reward, the resurrection of the body for life everlasting. This is not something that is for a time. This is for forever.
Now, in this life, you will experience sickness, and you will experience death, and you will lose people that you love, and one day you too will die. And it might be grueling and long and painful and ugly, and I hate it. But there is life. There is life. This is what we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Now, if I had like 16 weeks for a college course, we would get into the nitty-gritty of all of the ways that we believe from Scripture that what are, what are all of our friends who have gone before us in faith in Christ, what are they doing right now, and when does the resurrection of the body actually happen, and when does eternal life actually begin? Dallas Willard says it's at the moment of your salvation, and some other people say it's not until Jesus really returns, and what are we doing is the second that we die to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But we don't have 16 weeks. I just say this. This is the gospel of Jesus, that when you die in faith in Christ, whether you have already died, which if you have, you're not listening to me, or if you're going to die at some point in the future, which is 100% of all of us. We have this promise. That Jesus died and rose again so that we could too. Forever. You can talk about what that looks like. You can buy me food at some point and we will celebrate the blessings of good food over a good conversation about all of the nuances of what that looks like. But I think the most important thing to do is to ask ourselves, how do we actually respond to a topic like this? And, and I, th I think you probably, you guys are smart, you, you know the answer to this question. How do you respond to a conversation about confession to Christ in the context of community, you confess. And so the only thing to do at this point is to give you a moment to make confession. So here's how we end this service. We've already told you the, this one thing strategically about our day, that before you leave this place, we want you to stand around a body of water with us as at least one person is water baptized. Before you do that, we want to give you some space to make confession. So I, I know that Pastor Mark had our prayer team come up and pray for some folks earlier. I would just like to ask those same people to come up and just line up right here. And these are uh, what we would call our, con our confessors today. You're the one confessing. The confessor is the one who receives your confession. See how those words work? Now, I just want to say about these people that I trust them, and I would trust them with confession of my own sin. In fact, for most of you, I think I probably have. <laughs> and I still get to be your pastor. So we trust these people, right? Um, now, I'm not saying that these people lined up here are the only people to confess sin to in this moment, that you have to come and talk to Pastor Greg. Right? I'm just saying that if you do, here's how Pastor Greg would respond. He would respond by saying that you're loved, by reminding you that you're forgiven in the name of Jesus and asking how he can pray for you. And there would be a moment of healing for you in your spirit and your soul and maybe even in your body. And I know that Rondo would respond the same way that Greg would respond because this is how Jesus would respond. These people are trustworthy. 
So they are here, no requirement, no expectation, just an invitation. As we end our service, we're going to end this service the way we've ended all of our services during this series through the Apostles' Creed. We're going to stand to our feet and pray the Apostles' Creed together. And then when I say amen, I want to pray a simple blessing over you, and you will be dismissed, but kind of like halfway dismissed, because dismissed today means please go to the front and make confession. Please go grab your kids from Life Kids, and then please go to the courtyard where we will thank Jesus that it's not raining, and we will baptize a friend and we will make an opportunity available for anyone else who wants to be baptized today. Would you stand with me as we conclude our series and this portion of our gathering by praying together the Apostles' Creed? We have now gone through all of this creed, and I would just remind you that the word amen at the end is a word that means, God, let this be true. I want these things to be true about my life. Will you pray the Apostles' Creed out loud with me as we say this? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, before you come to confess sin or turn to a neighbor to do the same and pray for one another, before we celebrate baptism, I pray this simple blessing over you today. May you receive the forgiveness and peace of Jesus as you confess sin to Jesus and to community. And may that experience bring you freedom from sin, guilt, and shame. May you enjoy the blessings of full life now as you look forward to the resurrection of the body. And may your freedom be a blessing to others in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.